Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. The last editorial that we did was 10 Philosophies for Engineers. Listeners really enjoyed that episode, so we decided to do another. If you are new to this monologue format, then um, if you haven't heard that episode, you might want to tune back into the 10 Philosophies for Engineers. But if you've heard it and you liked it, then you might like this episode. 10 Philosophies for Engineers was a collection of beliefs that I have about the software engineering industry and how we as engineers can find fulfillment in our work as engineers. The philosophies that I discussed in that episode were rooted in my experiences working as a computer science student and then at an engineer as an engineer at several different companies after that. But before writing any lines of code, um, starting back in college when I was 20, when I started as a computer science student, um, even before that, I played poker competitively for five years, from the age of 15 to 20, and I played um, you know, mid-stakes and high-stakes uh, for a lot of money, for thousands of dollars. And this was a really formative experience. Um, playing poker changed my perspective on money, on risk, uh, on statistics. Uh, I've written about playing poker a lot on Quora, and I'll put some of the links to that in the show notes uh, if you want to know more about that background. This re- isn't really like a bio- like super biographical um, monologue, but it, uh, it, there are some biographical elements uh, about poker in this. Um, so it's been seven years since I stopped playing poker full-time, but the lessons of the game are still with me. And in this editorial, I'll discuss some beliefs that I have that relate to both poker and software engineering. And there's more things that relate to both poker and software engineering than you might expect. As with the 10 philosophies episode, these beliefs are my own opinions. If you disagree with them, that's great. And I would love to know why you disagree with them. Um, I am totally up for you know discussion, debate, Uh, That's what Software Engineering Daily is about. We love to discuss the philosophies and the theory around software engineering. Um, So if you have any thoughts on this episode or on other episode, you know, we make content for our listeners and for our readers. So please tell us how we can improve. Email us, fill out our listener survey. The listener survey can be found on the website or in the newsletter. Uh, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com and check out the newsletter or check out our website. Um, and so with that, you know, I want to get to this episode, Poker and Software Engineering. I really hope you enjoy it. As a poker player becomes a software engineer, certain trends about human-computer interaction become apparent. 1. Human poker players will lose to computers in the near future. 2. Every field is plagued by the madness of crowds. 3. Emotional labor is a competitive advantage. 4. Creativity and autonomy are necessary for success. This episode explores each of these four trends and explains why these trends are important to poker players, software engineers, and everybody else. Section 1. Automated Games In 2008, poker was the perfect sport for human-computer symbiosis. 
What Tyler Cowen said about freestyle chess also applied to poker. This is a quote from Tyler Cowen. Even very strong computers don't have that meta-rational sense of when things are ambiguous. Today, the human plus machine teams are better than machines by themselves. It shows how there may always be room for a human element. That's the end of the quote by Tyler Cowen. In poker, a human with a statistical heads-up display can make decisions that are more mathematically justified than a human without such tools. So a heads-up display is a tool that gathers statistics as time goes on about how your opponents are playing, and it, and it aggregates those statistics and presents that to you. Sort of like a, like a logging and aggregation service over all of the different hands of poker that are played at the table. So your, con- your computer can, can witness all these hands for you and aggregate statistics and give those statistics to you. So with these heads-up displays, you have all these statistics about how the, the poker world is working around you. And these heads-up displays create a poker version of the human plus machine teams. These types of human and machine teams have won chess tournaments, um, you know, they, they win Go tournaments. Uh, human and machine interaction has, has widely been discussed in the, uh, the gaming uh, culture. One thesis of Tyler Cowen's book, Average is Over, is that a human will only be employable in the future if that human finds a career where human reasoning provides defensible value to the problem-solving process of a computer. If the human's responsibilities are not defensible, the human will be obviated. So if in the future... This is what Tyler Cowen says in Average is Over. Basically, if you can't help a computer do its job, then there's no place for you in society. Um, and so in, in a subsequent blog post, um, Tyler Cowen uh, addresses the flip that can occur when a computational problem no longer requires assistance from a human. So uh, you know there are types of problems like you know if you think about chess, when, when it's uh, a human working with a computer to play chess, uh, the, the human can really help out uh, the computer play chess, but there are signs that uh, increasingly the computer doesn't even need the human. And the, the, human, the human's contributions to the human-computer interaction thing in chess just don't really matter anymore. So Tyler Cowen says in this quote about that flip from... Uh, a a computer needing human assistance to a computer no longer needing human assistance. He says, Fairly soon, the computer programs might be good enough that adding the human to the computer doesn't bring any advantage. That's been the case in Checkers for some time, as that game is fully solved. So Checkers is fully solved. Computer can do it better than anything else. A human doesn't bring any value to the, uh, the Checkers problem. And in this quote, Tyler Cowen also says, Think about why such a flip might be in the works, even though chess is far from fully solved. So, that's the end of the quote. Poker players have been increasingly defeated by machines for the past 10 years. And if you want, there's some some research, uh, there's some case studies that have been done, there's some experiments that have been done, and there's links to all of these in the show notes for this episode. But because poker players have been increasingly defeated by machines for the past 10 years, it wasn't really a surprise to me that Google was able to develop AlphaGo and defeat Lee Sedol, uh, 
who was a human, obviously. So, you know, this is this is Google's, uh, the recent news about Google, when, when Google was able to beat a human at Go. And this was kind of a, a landmark in, in AI, except maybe it wasn't such a big deal. Um, if Google decided to beat humans at poker, it would be a trivial exercise for the researchers at Google. Because, I mean, my, my belief here is that these games aren't actually that hard to figure out how to get computers to solve them. It's just that you have to get the right people working on the 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 computer programs that would beat the the humans at uh, chess or go or poker or whatever. And and generally these humans are working on these these people these programmers are working on other problems. They're not working on like solving solving go or solving poker. They're working on like self-driving cars and drones and stuff. So maybe that's wrong, maybe it's right, but in in any case, um, I, I want to use this as an opportunity to discuss how poker uh, may or may not differ from Go and chess, because you know we're talking about Go, we're talking about chess, we're talking about checkers. These are games that are classified as different than poker. Um, so why is that? Well, you know, poker seems different than Go or chess because there is non-determinism. There's randomness. There's random cards. You know, you sh- like. I, and in this post, I use poker interchangeably with No Limit Hold'em. I realize there are different variations of poker, but in in No Limit Hold'em, you start with two cards. You don't know how the board will develop. It could develop in any number of ways, and it would seem that fate is in control. Unlike Go and chess, which have no random elements. Go and chess don't have random elements. The, uh, the game is. Uh, complete information is how they talk about it. But the thing is, poker has only four suits. It's got 13 ranks. And so the deck doesn't have very much complexity. Like a poker game has a trivial branching factor. And the determinism, sorry, the non-determinism is so minimal for a computer to plan around that it's effectively deterministic. So... My comparison here is that if if AlphaGo had to learn to play a version of Go with the following rule, um, so let's say you know you're you're a computer, uh, you're AlphaGo, and you have already solved Go, and now you have to learn to beat Go with uh, the the following rule. And the rule is at the beginning of each turn you flip a coin, and if you lose the flip you don't get to move. So it's just a coin flip. That's non-determinism. But adjusting to that rule would be trivial because it's it's just a 50-50 shot. And uh, yes, that's complicated, kind of. I mean, it definitely adds, you know, a branching, you know, adds to the branching factor of the game. But, you know, intuitively, I, I can't say for sure. I'm not a deep learning expert. I'm not an AlphaGo expert. But intuitively, this is an element of non-determinism that like the computer would still crush a human uh you know lisa doll lost to AlphaGo four to one and uh I, I think you know that's that's a pretty convincing defeat and i don't think adding a coin flip rule would uh bring the advantage in lee's favor uh significantly at all um and so that's the magnitude of non-determinism that we're talking about within poker you know, it's it's really really minor non-determinism. Um, you know, the 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 statistical framing of the game is just not that 
not super rich. Um, and maybe that's that's hard to see if you if you haven't played the game very much, but really the statistics are not that deep. And that's why it's so easy for for poker players like like oh you talk to a, a professional poker player uh, and you you ask them like so what's the chance that you know you're gonna get the best hand by you know the river or whatever and they'll be like oh it's twelve point five percent and you'll be like wow this guy's an expert and it's like yeah he's kind of an expert but he just memorized some numbers because there's not that many numbers to memorize um, so in any case poker and chess and go they all have small decision spaces. The rules don't ever change. The game pieces don't ever change. There's minimal non-determinism, assuming you agree with the non-determinism framing that I talked about slightly earlier. And, you know, a computer can assess a hand of poker just like that computer would assess a hidden Markov model. Uh, but it, would t it will take work on par with the AlphaGo team for a computer to be able to build that model correctly. If you don't know what a hidden Markov model is, uh, I suggest you you look it up. Look it up on Wikipedia. It's not total. It's not super complicated. It's like a kind of like a decision tree or a state uh, state transition diagram. It's very interesting. Uh, I would check out a hidden Markov model. But in any case, if if what I'm saying resonates with you, if it kind of makes sense, then it's kind of easy to see that the job of a professional poker player has been a bad long-term choice for a computer to, for a human to pursue for more than a decade because it's vulnerable to automation. Like it's just so obvious to me that, that poker is, is going to be automated. Um, and games like go and poker and chess can be automated with machine learning techniques that we understand today. Uh, the rules, the game piece schema, the objectives, these are all easy to define. So these games are really ripe for supervised learning and reinforcement learning, which are two types of uh, uh, machine learning. And, um, you know, as the AlphaGo thing was going on, Jan LeCun was posting about it on, on Facebook a lot. Jan LeCun is the head of the artificial intelligence department at Facebook. Uh, he's been like the one of the biggest proponents of deep learning maybe the biggest proponent um, and he says in this quote uh, he says as i've said in previous statements most of human and animal learning is unsupervised learning if intelligence was a cake unsupervised learning would be the cake supervised learning would be the icing on the cake and reinforcement learning would be the cherry on the cake we know how to make the icing and the cherry but we don't know how to make the cake we need to solve the unsupervised learning problem before we can even think of getting to true AI. And that's just an obstacle we know about. What about all the ones we don't know about? And that's the end of Jan's quote. So what he's saying is, uh, you know, we've got really good methods for doing supervised learning and reinforcement learning. It's unsupervised learning. That's the problem. Uh, and I I'm not totally sure I'm correct here, but I think unsupervised learning has a correlation with non-determinism. So, uh, you know, it might be intuitive to say, oh, poker has some non-determinism, therefore it's a good fit for, it. it you know, it's, it, it, will, it will not be solved until we have unsupervised learning figured out. But kind of what I said previously is that the, the non-determinism poker is so simple as to effectively be deterministic. So, 
Poker is vulnerable to the same supervised learning and reinforcement learning techniques that allowed AlphaGo to beat Lee Sedol in Go. So why is that? Um, well, let's talk about supervised learning and reinforcement learning. Supervised learning is the machine learning task of inferring a function from labeled training data. So billions of hand histories exist for a poker bot to train on. You can supervise a poker bot to learn how to play poker using supervised learning. These, you know, these histories of hands, of poker hands that have been played, they're really short and they're really, they have a great schema. You know, there's the such, such a well-formed uh, document. You can look up the, the hand history of poker, or I'll include one in the show notes. Um, it's just so perfect for consumption by a robot. The robot can just look at this and, and understand what went on in a hand of poker, and therefore it, it's perfect for training data for supervised learning. So that's supervised learning. So reinforcement learning is, the, is another thing we have figured out quite well. Reinforcement learning is learning by interacting with an environment. Poker bots can test and parallelize their strategies across the thousands of free poker games or the cheap poker games, you know, one cent, two cent, uh, all across the internet. And you can't, you can't moderate these bots. So it's very easy to test strategies. So it's very easy to learn by interacting with an environment for a poker bot. Um, and there's a term called a reward signal in reinforcement learning. You, you know, you need the Pavlovian reward to know if your strategy is working because if, you know, if you get the, if, if you test a strategy and you get rewarded, that's a reward signal, so you know to keep employing that strategy or to amp it up. Uh, and the reward signal of a strategy can be defined as just profit, you know, profit over a time horizon. Um, so that's another reason why poker is kind of can be kind of simple. You know, if you just say like, okay, well, we want to, you know, the, our reward signal is how much profit we make over a, over a, you know a day. Um, that's not a very expensive test to run. Uh, and it's not a very complex reward signal to define. Whereas if you're trying to define the reward signal of a self-driving car, well, is it is the reward signal like that the car gets you from point A to point B? If you optimize for that, then maybe the car just just you know takes some super long circuitous route and it gets you from point A to point B, but it's kind of slow. So maybe we'll have other reward signals like speed and all these other things. But with poker. It's pretty straightforward. You just want to make some money. So um, very straightforward. And today, the the surviving human professionals that are playing poker, they're just they're cannibalizing each other. Um, it, and it's it, poker has become mostly this uh, hyper competitive industry between the professionals that still remain. And before long, even the best of these players are going to be losing their money to bots. That's my belief. Um, so what are the games that will not be automated in the near future? Um, maybe we can have a, a good proof by contradiction here. Uh, or proof by contradiction, that's probably the wrong term. But anyway, games, games that cannot be easily solved with simple supervised learning and reinforcement learning will not be automated in the near future. So these types of games are like Magic the Gathering, SimCity, Minecraft, Dungeons and Dragons. These are really complex games. And some of the features of these games 
that make them bad candidates for automation are the following things. So one, large branching factors at the points of non-determinism. That's in contrast to like a game of poker where the non-determinism has a pretty low branching factor. Uh, Number two, these games have a large game piece corpus with a game piece schema that is hard to normalize. Three, these games have a non-negative sum nature. Four, these games have subjective player goals. And five, these games have widely varying end game states and win conditions. In Go and chess and poker, the rules of success and failure are so easy to define. In contrast, it is very difficult to explain what makes an ideal Minecraft player. Different Minecraft players have different goals and win conditions. So we have no way to supervise a computer to succeed at Minecraft, or we have no way to reward a computer for its desirable Minecraft behavior. Um, And in terms of simple game piece uh, setups, like poker has 52 game piece types. It's got 13 suits, uh, sorry, 13 ranks and four suits. 13 times four is 52. Chess has six different game piece types. Go has one type of game piece. Magic the Gathering has 16,000 unique cards. And we have no idea how to teach a computer to understand the complex strategic relationships among these 16,000 different card types. We just have no idea how to represent that to a computer. Um, so that's why you know Magic would, would not be a good fit for automation. Dungeons and Dragons. This is a cooperative, positive sum, highly random game. It's oriented around subjective player goals. And a computer is just not going to rival the creative, utilitarian humanism of a talented dungeon master anytime soon. Because we don't have a good way to codify the traits of a successful game of Dungeons and Dragons. Like, nobody can say well, that was just the best game of Dungeons & Dragons, or, you know, that game was was worse, you know, because there's all these subjective elements of it. So, as humans, these are the games that we should be studying. These are the games that we should be celebrating, because there's these are games are not going to be automated anytime soon. So, if we're trying to practice skills that will not be automated, then we should be playing these kinds of games. Um, rather than Go and chess and poker. These games were excellent pastimes before this renaissance of games that we've had in the last 30 years, but today there are better games that we could be playing. Um, And that's kind of one of the reasons I left poker, is I was like, this game is not representative of the real world as much as some other games that are out there. Um, Not a complete knock on poker. I like poker, but... Um, otherwise I wouldn't have played it for five years, but AlphaGo proves that Go is just another routine that can be automated. Um, you know, Go is like fast food preparation or truck driving, in my opinion. If you're, if you're one of those prodigies in Korea who's learning to play Go, you know, I think you, you know, it's, it's like you're learning fast food preparation or truck driving. It's just going to be automated. There's no point in learning it at this point. And so rather than spending time on Go or chess or poker, human time is better spent playing games that mirror the activities which a computer has trouble with. I really think we should be playing more games like 
Minecraft and Magic and Dungeons and Dragons, <clears throat> Pan Pandemic, Dominion, these games that have really, really complex interaction structures. Um, anyway, that's my opinion. I really think that choosing a career as a professional poker player today is like choosing to be an Uber driver or choosing to be an Amazon warehouse worker because you're going to be automated away. Section 2, The Madness of Crowds. This section starts off with a brief discussion of technical analysis and fundamental analysis. These are two types of analysis of market fundamentals, like st how stocks move uh, and how bonds move, how companies uh, are valued by the public markets and by individual investors. And... Uh, and then I'll go into some other stuff, and then I will bring it back to why this discussion of technical analysis and fundamental analysis is relevant to the madness of crowds. So technical analysis is a security analysis methodology for forecasting the direction of prices through the study of past market data, primarily price and volume. Contrasting with technical analysis is fundamental analysis, which is the study of economic factors that influence the way investors price financial markets. Technical analysis argues that prices already reflect all of the underlying fundamental factors, and a fundamental factor that might not be reflected in technical analysis would be something like if there's a CEO that you really believe in, but you don't think that the market believes in the CEO as much, then it's not going to be reflected in the technical aspects of the stock, but it can be reflected in your fundamental analysis. You believe in the CEO in ways that may not be reflected in the data. So this contrast between technical analysis and fundamental analysis exists across uh, how different analysts view the market. So pure technical analysts believe in the wisdom of the crowds. They just believe that the data will sort itself out and ref be reflected in how the market prices something. Technical analysis, analysis holds that there aren't really secrets and that all the human knowledge about the future is factored into the crowd's evaluation of the present. Reasoning about markets using first principles can lead to decisions that differ from the wisdom of the crowds, and this is a form of fundamental analysis. So if if you have a first principle like, I believe that a good CEO can turn any company around, that may or may not be true, but if you believe in that and a company has a good CEO, despite terrible data about the company, maybe you believe that that company is worth buying, it's worth valuing. Um, so that's fundamental analysis, this first principles reasoning. So I'm going to come back to this discussion of technical analysis and fundamental analysis, but now I'm going to take a detour into discussions of poker. In 2003, an accountant turned amateur poker player named Chris Moneymaker 
won the World Series of Poker. And this coincided with ESPN's increase in video coverage of the event, the World Series of Poker. So people started going to restaurants and bars and watching poker at home like it was a sport. They would watch poker like it was the Super Bowl. And as poker became popular across the world, many unskilled players began playing the game. So because of all these unskilled players, by 2004, it was really easy for any computer-savvy teenager to learn how to play poker and take money from the numerous unskilled Americans who were trying to become the next Chris Moneymaker. So there was a wealth of information about how to win at poker online, like strategic information, mathematical information, statistics, and it didn't require much effort to study just the bare minimum of that information to be successful because you're playing against people who had no idea how to be successful. All these people that wanted to be the next Chris Moneymaker, they wouldn't even read a book about poker. They would just watch some poker on TV and decide that they were going to be Chris Moneymaker and and start playing online. So it was very easy for teenagers like myself who were very good at online games. You know, it just became a gold rush because, you know, I was just playing online games all the time instead of doing homework or anything like that and or programming. And, and because I knew how to play online games, it was very easy to translate those skills to play poker and to beat these unskilled amateurs. But there was no way that this was going to last. This was clearly a bubble of just unskilled people entering and slightly skilled people learning how to play and just destroying the amateurs. So this was unsustainable. And the first thing that led to the the market, the poker market kind of crashing and popping was that in 2006, the, the passage of the UIGEA, which is the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act of 2006, which made it really difficult for amateur players to put money onto their online accounts using credit cards. So that was a big blow to the poker economy. But then in 2008, the entire global economy collapsed, and that just further reduced the number of casual gamblers on the internet. In 2011, Black Friday happened, and Black Friday was the name that was ascribed to this incident where it was discovered that Full Tilt Poker was a Ponzi scheme. Full Tilt Poker was one of the biggest poker sites. It still is one of the biggest poker sites. Uh, All of its assets were acquired, but it was a Ponzi scheme, and a bunch of players were going to lose all their money because the company was insolvent. So since 2006, online poker has gotten increasingly difficult due to legislation and the market crashing and all these other things. And ever since 2006, since the glory days, there's been more and more poker players who just complain about the macro environment of poker. They just complain that it's gotten so hard. uh, And part of the reason it's gotten harder is because the poker popularity across the world has dropped by at least 80%. And that's according to Google Trends. So if you look at a Google Trends graph, you just search poker, uh, from 2006 downwards, uh, there's just an 80% drop up until the present. So people are not as interested in poker. And since 2006, these poker players who are professionals, who have stayed with the game since then, they just increasingly say that there's no more weak amateurs. Uh, and because there are no more weak amateurs, it's just a bunch of professionals who all have the same strategy fighting against each other. 
And when you have the same strategy and you're playing poker against each other, you're basically flipping coins. Because if you if you would make the same decision as anybody else, uh, and you just run that experiment a, a thousand times, it's going to be 50-50. So poker becomes a game of complete variance, complete coin flipping. But there were other players that it didn't matter to. It didn't this poker market crashing. It didn't matter to players like Dan Cates, Mike McDonald, Patrick Antonius. These were guys who had a strategy that was sufficiently better than the opposition that they had a fundamental opportunity. And they have continued to win despite a steep increase in the competition because it's a relative increase because the the amateur players have all left the game. They were not innovative. They were not, uh, th- these players were not uh, difficult to play against. And when the amateur players left the game and, it w- and you were left with professionals, like semi-professionals who were not extremely good at poker, they were not very innovative, they were not very resilient, um, it was just this hyper-competitive environment. But, um, you know, these other players, who, players like Dan Cates and Mike McDonald and Patrick Antonius, these guys were so good that they... They didn't see these events, these macro events in the poker economy crashing as fundamental threats to their own viability as professional poker players. They just saw these as technical events. So the details of the market changed, but the fundamental opportunity remained because the best players still have enough of an edge to make a great living playing poker. So why does this relate to software? Well, when investors and entrepreneurs talk about a bubble in Silicon Valley, they are talking about a technical bubble, not a fundamental bubble. So they're talking about data. They're not talking about fundamental reasons why the market may be going up or down. They're just talking about the number of people who are funding stuff. So the thing is, Cheap cloud computing and mobile phones and emerging markets of China and India and social networks and Docker and Bitcoin and supply chain economics and drones and fintech and virtual reality and so much more. There are so many fundamental opportunities with huge growth potential. So when you hear this this talk about a bubble, when investors and entrepreneurs talk about how winter is coming, what are they actually talking about? Well, what they're actually talking about is technical analysis. Technical analysis has very little to do with how viable a growth-driving breakthrough technology is. So the technical aspects of the market that these people talk about, that these venture capitalists and uh, investors and, and the weaker entrepreneurs who are complaining about the market, they're saying things like that institutional investors are pulling out of private markets and that China is a house of cards and it's going to crash and this is going to lead to some economic collapse. They talk about the price of oil going down. This is going to lead to some economic collapse. Talk about Greece and it or like food delivery startups being propped up by other startups and it's it's madness. There is no surer sign of the madness of crowds than when investors are looking to each other and they're looking to technical signs rather than fundamentals when they're trying to figure out the true nature of private markets. The true nature of private markets, you're going to have the best chance at understanding the long term by looking at the fundamentals. So investors who are claiming to pride themselves on long-term thinking, 
they are forgetting that the technological fundamentals determine the long-term viability of companies. And, you know, from 2006 to 2011, thousands of professional poker players quit poker because they convinced themselves that this popular narrative was true. They were convinced that poker had finally become a game of luck. And similarly, there's so much talk about how the fundraising environment is going to die and winter is coming and Silicon Valley is is going to explode because uh, there's not going to be fundraising. And I think it's just crazy. And and here I think there's this really good quote from Peter Thiel. Um, if you listen to the 10 Philosophies episode, you know I'm kind of a fan of his philosophy. So this quote, he says, when you think of it as a lottery ticket, and he's talking about startups, when you think of starting a company, a technology company, as a lottery ticket, when you say, this might work, this might not work, I don't know, you've already psyched yourself into losing. You've talked yourself into not doing as much work. Where we've done best over the years is where we've had a lot of conviction, where we were willing to put a lot of money into things. So he's talking about operating as a venture capitalist in that quote, but uh, this is also true for, for poker players. Weak poker players they quit when the bubble popped because they were convinced that poker had become so competitive that it was impossible to have an effective and differentiated strategy. And being perfectly frank, I was one of these players who quit. I had a very algorithmic, straightforward strategy, and I didn't adjust when when the game got tough. I just assumed that the game was broken, it wasn't me, when in actuality, it was me that was broken and I wasn't figuring out how to adjust. So the poker players who had faith in their own creativity and stayed with it around this time when the market crashed, some of them are are actually still doing really, really well, and they continue to make a living through hard work and study. And I think that in the near future, the, the technology investors who who have conviction about the fundamentals of the market, the, the the types of stuff I discussed earlier, cloud computing, social networks, mobile phones, supply chain economics, Docker, all the amazing things that we love to talk about on Software Engineering Daily, these are the things that will guide the intelligent investors. Uh, the unintelligent investors will just look to their fellow investors who are complaining about winter is coming, blah, 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 uh, and they will make a bunch of blunders and miss out on a fundamental economic boom that is going to last for a much longer time than many people are talking about. Section 3 emotional labor. In 2004 and 2005, college students and well-educated yuppies started playing poker because it was a low-risk, easy way to make money. Wealthy, amateur American poker players were losing money to these college students and yuppies. There was a huge difference in skill between these two classes of players. The college students and yuppies read books about statistics and psychology and complex poker strategy. In contrast, the wealthy, amateur Americans 
watched poker on TV, and tried to copy what they saw professionals doing on the screen. For the well-educated college students and yuppies, the only requirement for succeeding at high-stakes poker was patience. Patience was important because the wealthy, amateur Americans played so poorly that a college student could sit around waiting for opportunities to get money into the pot with a 10 to 1 advantage. From 2006 to 2011, legislative and economic circumstances pushed many of the, Amer the American players out of the game, the amateur American players. And as the wealthy amateurs disappeared from poker, the high-stakes field became 95% professionals. This was the crash I was talking about in the previous section, where poker just became less popular and the game became more competitive. In 2005, an average six-handed online poker table had three professionals and three amateurs. In 2006, an average table probably had four professionals, one pretty good amateur, and then one really weak amateur. By 2008, most tables were entirely filled with professionals and skilled amateurs. There were no more weak opponents to be found. And in this new world of almost entirely professional poker players, emotional resilience was the new key. Patience was no longer as important as emotional resilience. Professional players could no longer wait for a clear 10 to 1 or 5 to 1 advantage over their opponents. So the timid college students and yuppies who previously their strategy was to just be patient and wait for the right opportunity to take money from somebody, this no longer worked. And chaotic and hyper-aggressive players began to punish these super patient players. So these chaotic and hyper-aggressive players, they would play in a way that would increase variance, and they would make their opponents call into question their presumed risk of ruin. So the, the most extreme example of this is a guy named Victor Blom, who's otherwise known as Isildur 1. And he's this high-stakes player who was totally willing to go broke, and his willingness to go broke seemed to exceed his fear. So it led to a style where he would frequently overbet the pot. If you don't know what overbetting is, I've got a link in the show notes. Uh, it Basically, if you overbet a lot, then the game becomes a lot crazier, a lot more high stakes. And a professional playing against Victor Blom knew that more money could be lost or won in a short time frame than against anybody else. And I promise this is going to relate to software engineering. We'll get to that eventually. But for Victor Blom... The primary cost of using this high-variance, high-stakes strategy was that it was, it was swingy, and the primary cost was that emotional control is much harder to maintain if you're winning and losing millions of dollars on a more frequent basis than your opponents. So the trade-off was totally worth it, because Victor Blom had to deal with the emotional swings, but the strategy gave him both a mathematical advantage and a reputational advantage because it totally put his opponents off their game. And, and it also gave him a reputation of being this crazy guy that was totally willing to lose money. So why is this relevant to software engineering? So here I have a quote from Seth Godin, who is one of my favorite authors, and we did a, a Software Engineering Daily episode with him that I highly recommend checking out. He's just this modern philosopher, uh, a computer scientist, very intelligent guy. 
And so his quote goes, Emotional labor is available to all of us, but it is rarely exploited as a competitive advantage. So what does that mean, emotional labor? Well, Victor Blom gained massive competitive advantage by committing this type of emotional labor. He deliberately played poker in a way that was uncomfortable to everybody at the table because he judged himself as more capable of dealing with that discomfort than everyone else. So if you can deal with discomfort, you can use that as a competitive advantage. But most software engineers avoid emotional labor. When software engineers choose to work at a large corporation because it seems luxurious and safe, they are making a mistake. There has never been a better time for engineers to take extreme risks with their careers. Software engineers today are really privileged. We can do whatever we want. Our 9 to 5 jobs are enjoyable and creative and many of us have significant free time to do what we want. And during that free time, software engineers should stretch themselves and try to do emotional labor and see what they're capable of. The luxurious atmosphere of being a software engineer these days, it reminds me of 2005 when professional poker players had the option to live a carefree lifestyle themselves. Because we assumed, as poker players, we assumed that the gold rush of online poker would never end. And so many of us acted really irresponsibly with our money, as if we would be able to make $30,000 a month for the rest of our lives. Of course, that was not the case. And when the poker economy collapsed, many professional poker players' lives collapsed with that economic collapse because we had gotten so used to the good life, so used to the ability to just log on and make a thousand bucks in an hour that we had not worked hard enough to really capitalize on the opportunity at hand. But poker players who worked hard and worked smart during the 2003 to 2007 years of the poker boom were able to survive the bust because they 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 had been intelligent and maybe they had saved money so they were able to 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 last through the through the difficult times where it was harder uh, or they were resilient so they learned to defeat the the tougher competition once the the bust happened but in any case most poker players including myself did not work hard and we did not work smart during the boom most poker players did not practice emotional labor in 2005 when the game was easy, when it was easy to do emotional labor. And when poker became difficult in 2008, these players were fragile. Most professional poker players were unable to adapt to the newly competitive landscape. Poker got really, really hard, and I mean, that's such a yuppie thing thing to say. Poker got hard. Like, life gets so hard for other people, but um, poker did get relatively much more difficult. Uh, but there were players who were who were anti-fragile, uh, and they were able to thrive despite this increase in difficulty. And one example of that is Victor Blom, Isildur 1. Victor Blom got used to high-risk activity way back in 2005, before the bust. Uh, shortly after he started to play poker, he would just take risks. 
Uh, and here's a here's an anecdote from his Wikipedia. After a few weeks of play, just a few weeks of playing poker at all, uh, Victor Blom was already playing at $530 sit-and-goes. After a few more months of playing poker, the 15-year-old Victor Blom had made over $275,000 at various poker sites. He then collected all of the money onto one site and took on a higher buy-in cash game and sit-and-goes. This resulted in him losing all of his money. So he lost all $275,000 when he was 15. Then he built up a bankroll and deposited $3,000 onto the same site. He took it to high buy-in sit-and-goes and started to win more and more money. After building his bankroll back up to $50,000, he took on some uh, you know, a $310 sit-and-go regular, and he once again lost all of his money. So Victor Blom went broke twice when he was a teenager. And if you've never gone broke, it sucks. You lose all your money, and then you just have no money to play with. And then so you have to build back up from zero. So I don't want to talk about going broke like it's virtuous, like it's a good thing. And I know that for some poker players, being broke is totally an addiction. They get addicted to being broke, and they make a career out of this manic depressive cycle of building huge piles of money and then losing it all. But Victor Blom did not do that. He became anti-fragile from his early experiences going broke. And this was long before 2009. In 2009, he was able to take advantage of this emotional labor that he had uh, dealt with in 2005. And in 2009, he had this incredible winning streak. And this was after the poker economy had already started to collapse. He was basically just playing against literally the best players in the world and taking more risks than these guys. And they weren't used to playing against somebody who played so risky. So in the early days of his career, Victor Blom took risks. And the strength of the 2005 poker economy allowed him to rebuild his bankroll every time he went broke. So I say that to argue that software engineers should be acting like Victor Blom did in 2005. We are in this incredible time where if you're a good software engineer, you, you aren't going to lose your job. You aren't going to lose your viability. I mean, you may lose the job that you have if you take a risk and do something crazy and get fired, but like there's a million other jobs you can pick right back up at. So, so many, many people, many software engineers are using this boom economy as an excuse to just live like a king. Uh, live like a queen, you know, be luxurious, not take advantage, not grind, but this is the time to grind. This is the time to take risks because you have nothing to lose. The economy is so good and your downside is capped. So in 2005, Victor Blom could lose his entire bankroll playing high stakes and it was easy for him to rebuild at mid stakes. But by increasing his short-term risk of ruin, he decreased his long-term risk of ruin. So software engineers can do that too. If we take risks now, we are getting used to it so that in the long run, we will be more valuable as engineers. We will be more anti-fragile. We will, because, you know, <clears throat> the risk of ruin 
is just a financial risk of ruin generally unless you're like doing something crazy like taking a bunch of drugs which i don't advocate at all i advocate just like being more risky financially um because if you build up you know if you build up resilience during a time of a boom then if a bust happens you'll just be much more well equipped to deal with that bust um and i don't think that like saving money is necessarily the way to position yourself to be resilient during a during a bust of software engineering. I think the way to position yourself is to be so good that you would be successful as a software engineer even during a bust. I think that is a more resilient strategy. In 2016, a software engineer can quit a corporate job and build side projects for six months. I know many people who have a bunch of money saved up from their corporate jobs, and yet they just continue to work the corporate job. It just makes more sense to quit and then start building side projects. And if none of the side projects turn into a marketable product, then fine, you run out of your money, you can go back to the corporation, you can probably ask for a higher salary because you've learned a bunch of new skills from working on those side projects, and it just makes sense to take that risk. Risk Risk-taking is an act of emotional labor. Software engineers can build products, they can start a business, they can write algorithms, they can launch rockets, they can program self-driving cars, all of these activities require risk. The biggest risk is the emotional risk, the emotional labor. But many software engineers just spend their spare time doing activities that are very low risk, like playing video games or uh, going to the bar and getting drunk or playing poker. Um, if you commit to being a software engineer who is willing to take risks and commit to emotional labor, you can easily stand out from others. I recommend engaging in emotional labor. I spent my late teenage years playing poker, and I didn't write any code until my early 20s. Most of the successful engineers I know were coding during their teens, and I know that a lot of people feel a similar affliction if they've started to code later on in life. It's very easy to have this imposter syndrome when you see people who have been coding for such a long time, it seems like their entire life, and you wonder how can you ever catch up to these people that have been coding their entire lives. So in order to catch up, I have tried to leverage the skills that I learned in my past careers, namely poker. Uh, I've tried to leverage the skills I learned playing poker. And when you're learning to code as a second career, it can feel really difficult because it feels like you're throwing everything away from the past and starting from scratch. Whether you have trained as a barista or a salesperson or a biologist or a poker player, you have to find skills from the past that you can carry into your future as a software engineer. A barista is great at sequencing operations that are less trivial than they seem. A salesperson understands how to work with clients and to cater to their needs in high-stakes projects. A biologist understands abstractions and how to think about individual parts of a system in isolation. Being an outsider is a disadvantage at first, but over time it has tremendous value. Every job you have had in the past has transferable skills that can be applied to software engineering. 
and identifying the advantages that you have developed from your past experiences can help you feel more confident. When you start out as a software engineer, many developers will tell you what to do or how you should act. These people will say things like, learn JavaScript, go to a coding bootcamp, write tests for all your code, learn to make mobile apps, use Stack Overflow, become a master of the command line. And all of these things are true, but they're also kind of false because every person learns software engineering differently. Software engineering is an art, and to succeed as an artist, you have to decide what tools and methodologies you want to use. We have to decide for ourselves what we want to use and how we want to learn to do software engineering. And poker was also an art. It is also an art. There is no objectively best way to play poker. Poker players develop their art form through years of subjective experience. There is a book called The Philosophy of Poker, How to Be a Poker Player. It's by a friend of mine, Hasib Qureshi, and it's it's really one of the best poker books I've ever read. Um, and I'm probably biased because Hasib is my friend, but uh, I also did an episode with him, an uh, episode of Software Engineering Daily, and, and he's really got a perspective on life and on poker and now on software engineering because he's become a successful software engineer um, that you can't find in a lot of other places. And Hasib describes, he he describes his perspective on how to approach poker uh, in in this, this book, The Philosophy of Poker. And one section of this book is poker as shipbuilding. This is a, an allegory that he makes. So I'm just going to read a section from Poker as Shipbuilding, which is from The Philosophy of Poker. Imagine that your poker game is a ship, and you, the poker player, are the ship builder. Your ship is not an extension of you. It is not something internal, which exists in your mind. We want to imagine that instead, a poker game is an external object, your object, certainly the product of your craft and hard work, but nevertheless something that exists out there, ready to be analyzed, taken apart, and put back together. As a shipbuilder, you have a lot of choices to make on how to craft your ship. What kind of poker game do you want to build? You look out into the sea of poker, and you see hundreds of thousands of ships, all constructed differently with seemingly varied ideas and intentions behind their construction. Naturally, you only want to choose the best ships to emulate. So you watch videos of the great players, you watch their high-stakes games, you read their well-written articles, and you try to fashion your ship in their likenesses. But there is a fatal fallacy embedded in this process. No matter how many ships you look at, be it hundreds or thousands, even ships of the finest quality, no, no amount of studying such ships is going to make you able to build one for yourself. Because looking at ships is very different than actually building them. Even if you see a hundred ships which have solved the problem of how to construct a ship, how to keep it upright, how to balance the hull and the mast of the ship, you will still have to figure out through building how to solve these problems for yourself. You must learn how to build a ship not just in your mind but in your hands. Put plank against plank, hammer against nail. That's the end of Hasib's quote from Poker as Shipbuilding. And I can really relate to this because as a poker player, I failed 
because I copied, and I copied what other people were doing without understanding the reason behind it. I did not build my own ship as a poker player. And similarly, in software engineering, this happens. If your strategy is to copy others, you cannot differentiate yourself from the global talent pool. And you cannot differentiate yourself from the machines that are getting smarter every day. You want to be differentiated. You want to learn in your own way. As a software engineer, I now try to avoid making the mistake of blindly copying what is fashionable. Because a decade ago, I lost most of my money and I lost my career because I was simply following what others were doing and it didn't work in the context of poker. It's no surprise that it doesn't work very well in software engineering. So it's very useful to have such a history of pain that I have associated with copying others. Uh, Not like my history is particularly traumatic, it's just that I have this association with copying people that leads to a guttural sense of pain because when I've copied people's strategies, it made me fail at poker. So sometimes it can seem like copying other people will alleviate your pain. And sometimes this can be true in the short term. And sometimes it does help to fit in. But it's more important to understand why you want to copy something. Uh, And if it makes sense to copy them, then yeah, copy it. But otherwise, you know, if you just copy other people, you might end up doing something that you regret. If you do not copy the behavior of other engineers, your manager cannot treat you as a highly predictable commodity. And you can't just be spun up and assigned to a task like you're some EC2 cluster. If you aren't a highly predictable commodity, you will probably be either fired or promoted. So it's good to not just be predictable and copy everybody else. It's unfortunate that most companies are not set up to support or encourage individualistic behavior. Most companies want you to fit into a certain role so that they can easily allocate tasks to you like you're a standardized server. And this is why many software engineers end up stuck in jobs that make them unhappy because they simply take orders and they don't think through things themselves, considering all their options and seeing the bigger picture. Software engineers need to build their own ships. If your strategy as a software engineer is to only copy what you have already seen, you will follow people into old technologies. You will start companies in crowded markets. You will find yourself surrounded by other people who are afraid to create their own strategies, their own technologies, and their own products. If you build your own ship, the world is full of opportunity. That's the end of this episode of Software Engineering Daily. Again, I would love to know your thoughts on this. I know I said some stuff in this episode that might be somewhat weird or controversial or maybe confusing. And if it is, please reach out. You know, I don't, I'm not trying to be confusing or opaque. So if some of it seems really far-fetched and strange, let me know. SoftwareEngineeringDaily at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter or on Slack. We really want to know what you think. So please reach out. Um, and thanks for listening. This this podcast has been a real gift to me and to Pranay, the producer of Software Engineering Daily. And um, I just want to take the moment at the end of this monologue, which is you know sort of a experimental episode, to just say thanks to the listeners because this has been such an awesome opportunity. Mm-hmm.